welcome back to the flip side, Galen Clavio, along with Brian Moritz, a, a, a precipitation expectant Brian Moritz this evening. Brian, how are you doing, and, and are you, uh, I mean, I don't know, how do you folks react when you have snow coming? I mean, is it just like a ho-hum thing, or is it a little more of a of a deal? It's more, I think, a ho-hum thing. So we have, we're under uh, winter weather advisory right now, and they're calling between tonight, anytime, like probably while we're, while we're recording, and um, into tomorrow, like anywhere from three to six inches, which up here really? is, yeah, which up here is not a lot. I mean, I was say, fair, does that it, warrant an advisory for, I mean, to, I, I mean, to, like for you folks, no, I would think that would be like, you know, Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. Tuesday. Exactly. Um, I, I think the winter weather advisory, the the way I've come to understand it is that it's like a very technical national weather service term. So if there's going to be like certain amounts of precipitation or certain types of precipitation it's a winter weather advisory versus a winter storm which is more like more snow in a in a lesser amount of time um i mean the tv glory boys tend to go overboard with their uh with their coverage of it and they seem that seems to have grown actually in the age of kind of like social media i feel like but in general like like we're supposed to get like i said three to six inches of snow to, tonight and then to, then tomorrow and it's a whole lot of Eh, you know what, uh, what what exactly constitutes being a tv glory boy the tv the, the, the I, I feel like the, the weather for me in this context in this specific context it would be the tv weather the the tv weather people who are very much like with lots of infographics and lots of like live shots and like very much hyping up the potential of a storm so 12 to 14 inches possible under like one model that nobody that has like a 5% chance of happening. And like the, the, the storm height people is kind of what I feel like in this. So and like, so like if slate did meteorology, <laughs> I was thinking more if like first take did, but no slate would be a good pick. Yeah. Um, skip Bayless's weather forecast. Um, why doesn't skip Bayless work for slate? Ah, uh, I don't, I, 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 don't know if I see him much really as a slate guy. Um, because you, you got to admit, if he, if, if they had a video channel, um, he would probably fit in quite well. Whatever you think his politics are. Right, but, but see, the slate take to me, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if Skip is necessarily a slate take guy, because to me, the slate take is this thing, this contra- this one contrary opinion about the thing that nobody ever asked the contrary opinion about. Like, stargazing is stupid. Like, which Tim, is an Tebow, actual- like Tim Tebow? Uh, at least there was, you know, him holding on to that is slate-esque, but I think the slate take is, like, stargazing is dumb, or something like that. Or <laughs> no, star- stargazing will kill you. Right, something like that. Like, um, which it might. It's, it's possible, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> A lot of things are, in fact, possible is the thing. So, um, uh, there's, uh, actually, there's the slate take. A lot of things right. actually aren't possible. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, and, and and it's killer because I know some people who who have written for Slate and write for Slate, and they've written not the slate takey stuff, but like actual you know, long form magazine style journalism, and done good work there. But it, it it's, it's kind of like. It, it is kind of like the uh, the slightly one scale more perceived uh, upper scale than BuzzFeed, 
like you're if you think you're too smart to really like BuzzFeed, you'll you'll like Slate. Um, and yeah, I the the, the I, I I love coming up with Slate takes. Like a couple of years ago, when the New York Times had that big review of Guy Fieri's restaurant in Times Square, and just and it was the the great shredding of that restaurant. Right. I was half expecting the Slate take two days later to be actually Guy Fieri's restaurant is quite good. Or something like that, you know? Right. That's kind of the quintessential slate take to me. Interesting. Well, well I'm glad we covered that. Yes, uh, yes. We, we got that out of the way early, and that wasn't even on the list. Let's let's go to alcohol. What do you got on your drink list tonight? So tonight the drink is, this is the uh, a ginger wheat from the Unknown Brewing Company. And let's see, the Unknown Brewing Company is based in Charlotte, and it's quite good. So it's a ginger wheat, kind of like more of an ale. A ginger uh, wheat. A ginger wheat. I've yeah. Never, I've never even thought about that combination in beer. I haven't either, but but you know, kind of like last you know what last week. It's not very strong ginger flavor, and it kind of cuts the 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 heaviness of the wheat. I'm finding so um, gives it a certain kind of lightness to it, and makes it a little bit e- easily drinkable. So that's a 5.1%, so solid beer from the Unknown Brewing Company. So what do you have? I have a Miller Lite, <laughs> which is, which is like, inconceivably better than the Corona Light that I had last week. I mean, this is, this is really, like, it's, this tastes like Dom Perignon. In, in comparison, it is, well, it is well, well, no, it's not Miller High Life is Miller the High Life, and actually Miller High Life is not very good. If you no. ever actually had it, it, it does not taste. I would actually rather have Miller Light than Miller High Life. I there's a there's a bar we I used I go to sometimes uh, not far from here, and they have a your dad's your dad's beer chest or your grandpa's beer chest. I forget what they call it, and it's like two dollar cans of Miller High Life and. PBR for the hipsters, but like Schlitz and Narragansett and all these kind of old time breweries. Um, and my buddy and I, once we just drank our way through it, we tried every one and Miller High Life does not age well. Um, yeah, it's like, it, you know, it's funny because you could have foreseen perhaps a Pabst Blue Ribbon like place in the sun for for Miller High Life in this right. era where, you know, we're bringing back things. And, I, you know, I actually... You know, Pabst Blue Ribbon, I actually have come around on considerably. I, I find it to be a, a perfectly acceptable beer to drink when you're mm-hmm. out at the bar. But, uh, but man, yeah, Miller High Life, not not good. Um, no. Now, what's no. interesting, I don't uh, – so um, I follow Darren Ravel purely for professional purposes. Um, okay. And he tweeted something out before uh, – actually, it was during the, uh, the, the, the NFC title game this past week, and he uh, – he noted, this was the tweet, while we're watching Matty Ice, Natty Light is now the sixth best-selling beer brand in the U.S. after getting passed by Michelob Ultra, um, which is a terrible that, tweet. But that is, that, that, is the, that, is a, that is the quintessential Darren Ravel tweet right but I, there. But, but I did have some numbers that I attached to the, uh, it was a chart, the top ten beers, that I thought were interesting, and I wanted to bring them to the podcast. And so, okay. do you know what the top-selling beer in the country is? It's pretty easy. Uh, it's pretty easy guess. Bud Light. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many, uh, how much money in sales in dollars Bud Light made uh, this year? 
It's going to be an extremely high number given given the setup here. So I'm going to go. Yeah, I, I, and I have no idea. So I'm basically Austin Powersing this. You put me on the spot like this all the time. So. I do. A <laughs> uh, hundred million dollars a year. A hundred million dollars a year. I've, I, I've literally Austin Powers that. So, yeah, you're going to be sick. <laughs> OK, five point nine nine billion dollars. So I was off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, wow. The second best selling beer, uh, domestic beer, is Coors Light, which sells okay. $2.4 billion worth wow. of beer. I would not have thought there was that big a gap between the two. Um, Budweiser's third at 2.1. Miller uh-huh. Light is fourth at, at 2.05. Michelob Ultra is sixth at $1.2 billion. And then Natty Light is at one billion, and uh, the the remaining top ten are Bush Light, Bush, Miller High Life is ninth actually, and then huh. and then Keystone Light is tenth. Seriously, now, I, 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 did, I forgot they still made Keystone. To be honest with you, it's, it's yeah, it's one of those beers that kind of they had a big marketing campaign in like the late nineties. It was like the last real big hurrah of like the new crap like domestic beer brands remember right. like ice house and oh, yes. and red dog and uh you know milwaukee's best was actually advertising on television back then old milwaukee was still advertising yeah um so yeah keystone keystone's still active they sold 421 million dollars and, and keystone's like the rc cola of beers really you right know? does does keystone still have the, the can that's lined like a bottle that was their big ad campaign. It must have been when I when I was before I was drinking age, so like late '80s, early '90s. I think that's what sticks with me is they had the bottle, they had the See, can. I, it was lined with the line like a bottle. Um, I don't recall this. I do. I do recall though the uh, they had the bitter beer face. Um, oh yeah, campaign. Of if you'll recall, back in the, the heyday of of great ad campaigns for terrible beers. Right. Yes, that um, was. That was good. That that was up there, yeah. So anyway, that that that's uh, we can thank Darren Ravel for that tweet. Uh, that's that's it's staggering that Budweiser that Bud Light's that far ahead. Like I get that they're number one, and there's no surprises really in the top in the top ten, but that that they're almost triple sec, excuse me second place is really surprising to me. I I don't know why, but I guess you know that's a huge gap between one and two in the beer set in, in beer sales um it made, it made me wonder like what what's what are the uh what are the similar are there is there a similar spread in soft drink sales and um you know it, it, there's not like so coca-cola okay. coca-cola has 42.3 percent of the market okay pepsi has 27 and a half percent of the market okay so a 15 percent gap yeah that's not you know, and 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 so it's just it's amazing how how much of a lead Bud Light has, and I don't I don't really have a good answer as to why, because I you know growing up, growing up, I, Jesus, you know, like, but <laughs> way back back when, but, time no, but, was. but no, like, you know, but like fifteen fifteen years ago when I was in my early twenties, you know, I, I I mean Bud Light was always around, but it certainly you didn't feel like that was the primary beer. No, that was out there, and I guess it is now. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, it's uh, it's really kind of fascinating. 
No, I know. And I, I know I've said this on this podcast numerous times, but growing up in Western New York where we did, you know, it was Labatt Blue and Labatt Blue Light. I mean, that was the, you know, your, you know, the everyday beer for everyday people, I guess. Like that was just the standard beer that was around was Labatt Blue and Labatt Blue Light. And we Buffalo wasn't really a big Budweiser town or a Bud Light town, to my knowledge. But apparently it might have been. I don't know. And, you know. It is. It's interesting how they do. They do sales like they sell it to a bar, and then the bar, you know, does it like? Are, are they counting like when some the distributor sells it to the bar, and that before the bar sells it to the consumer? So like every bar you go to has Bud Light or Bud on tap, um, and so like are they counting that as the sales in front uh, on the front end or on the back end? I don't know. We're delving. We're delving too far into the methodology on yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm missing out on that. I don't know. But hey, it's, it's one of those things. Maybe I'm, I, it might be just all revenues. I, but I'm not, not totally sure. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, we have uh, a lot of topics. Some we came up with on our own. We have a couple of good ones from, uh, from your social media feed that chipped in yes. nicely this week. Um, as always, you can get us at FlipsidePod on Twitter or with the hashtag FlipsidePod. If you give us a topic, we will spend at least one minute on it. And we have three today. Let's start with uh, Griffins from Twitter because it can kind of get into one of our own topics that we wanted to talk about. Uh, so Griffin Weinberg uh, tweeted at us, and he wants us to talk about the moment when Goodell hands Tom Brady the Lombardi Trophy. So this actually so, ties in. This ties in with something else that I wanted to mention that I had tweeted right. you earlier. So maybe we'll start there and then wind our way to Griffin's uh, question. Yes. So, so this is like the mystery. I have a Galen's mystery move on the football game. I know nothing of what's coming, folks. So, so I, I tweeted at Brian and I said I did something uh, inconceivable during the AFC title game this year. And uh, what that was, was I was actually rooting for the Patriots. This podcast is over. (laughs) (laughs) And I was worried that that was going to be your reaction. Um, (laughs) Let me explain. First of all, I realized that, you know, you're a, you're a diehard Bills fan. And Mm -hmm. the, you know, if, um, if, if the Patriots are, are, you know, Russia, the, the Bills are like Ukraine or Georgia. or No, we wish we could be that. We're like Tajikistan or one of those. <laughs> you've been const- we, aspire, we aspire on our good days to be Georgia or Ukraine. You've been constantly uh, trod upon over the course of your almost entire, at least the, at least the last 20 years or so. Right, um, right. So I, and I get that. And look, and I'm a Colts fan, and, and certainly there's – uh, no love lost between the Colts and the Patriots. The Patriots probably still are the team that generates the most enmity among people here in the Midwest because of the battles with, you know, between the, the Colts and the Patriots in the 2000s, and you know the fact that they they beat the Colts in in two AFC title games and or an AFC title game and an AFC playoffs in a row, and uh, they were always kind of the team that just was a bit better than the the, the Peyton era Colts. So right. But I got to thinking about this, and two things really made the decision for me. Um, one is that you're maybe not exposed to this as much, but here in the Midwest, the, um, the there's a, a large and unruly population of Steelers fans. Oh, they are everywhere. And and they're really annoying, like in, in a way like that is, is hard to describe. That There's not a great analog in other 
sports, because even though this is a franchise that certainly has had success, they've won, you know, you know, a large number, six, numbers, Super, Bowl, yeah, yeah. six Super Bowls, you know, but, but it's been like a kind of a spread out success, you know, I mean, they won right. four Super Bowls between what 1974 and 1980, and then mm-hmm. they didn't win another Super Bowl until 2005. They won one in 08, and then they haven't won one since then. They, right. Uh, you know, and so it's it's been like, okay, you're good, but you're good in like spurts. But but because of the six Super Bowls, you know, they they've you know they've got an argument for being the most successful franchise in the Super Bowl era. Um, but and and they're just, they just don't shut up. Uh, and, and, I, and I, I had a hard time conceiving of a world where the Steelers had won a seventh Super Bowl. Mm. Uh, and I just I felt like that was like, you know, that's a bridge too far. It is. I mean, like Patriots fans are are often abrasive and obnoxious, but they're kind of they're, they're so insular because they, they 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 somehow have managed to attain a world class inferiority complex throughout this, right. the, this last few years. And, and that's one thing that Steelers fans do not possess is any sort of inferiority complex. And so. Uh, I just I couldn't see myself consciously rooting for a team whose fan base would bring me a lot of, of irritation like that. Um, okay. But I gotta say the other reason and the much larger reason is, you know, I I, I really respect what the Patriots have done. They they are just so consistently good year after year. And I and I used to get mad. I used to be um, dismissive of it. I used to just say, you know, I automatically dis- dislike them. And at the end of the day, the more I look at them, and I'm, I, I'm like, this is an unprecedented level of success in any in any sport uh, with the same coach, uh, you know, commanding them. I mean, we you know we've seen the Yankees that you know they've they've had success under different leadership. The Canadians certainly in the, you know, up until the 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 early 90s, you know, had that under different leadership. But this is this is like a rarity in sports history where we've got this immensely successful period of time under the same leadership. And I just come to the point where I don't resent it anymore. I just kind of tip my cap to it. And I say, I respect this. I respect what they're doing. And, and I don't mind if they win games and win championships. I mean, a couple thoughts on this one. I mean, I, I, I always cheer against the Patriots just as kind of par for the course. Um, the Steelers thing is real. The Steelers thing is something that's really legit. Um, when I lived in Olean, it was a town that's right on the PA border, and it really was an evenly split town between Bills fans and Steelers fans. Um, very even, almost kind of a 50-50 split. And then in living in Binghamton, again, on the PA border, so there's a huge contingent of Steelers fans. Um, my daughter all age six and precocious of her declared herself a Steelers fan this week, uh, last week. Well, because she, she has decent logic. One, why are you, she asked me why I was a Bills fan. Cause they lose all the games, which fair. I mean, I can't argue with that, but also two of her friends at school are big Steelers fans and she's six. And I'm like, all right, if you're going to cheer for a team, you cheer for a team. That's usually pretty good. I'm not, whatever. I can't, I can't be judge you for being a Steelers fan. Um, and, you know, I think the Steelers, you know, they they it, they, they have the, the, the longevity and they have that 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 kind of enviable thing as someone whose franchise is in the toilet in that they, the, the Steelers never seemingly tank. Um, and they're always usually pretty decent to pretty good. Right. Like they may not be great, but they're always good. Um, and, you know, that's why they, that's why the Bills hired Doug Whaley, because he came from the Steelers and he's going to, you know, start that culture here. And, yeah, sure. that's happened. Yeah, that's, right. that's, that's, that's going to happen. That's exactly what's happening here. Um, but 
but in ter- in terms of the Patriots, um, you know, look, I I kind of look at them with the same kind of grudging the that the the, the ha- hated but grudging admiration to them. I mean, you can't be a sports fan and not admire the the, the run of success that they've had over what. 15, 16 years now with, with with Belichick and with Brady and with with the the the, the variety. And again, they're always good. Like they are just always they're they're automatically good. I was just reading a a story slash oral history, um, which is a topic for another week. But uh, but it was talking to other coaches and players about it was basically a profile of Bill Belichick done oral history style, and. I, I do find Belichick and both both Belichick and Brady to be really fascinating guys, just in you know how, in that how are they consistently this good without any letups? You know, especially somebody made a, made a point. I forget where I read this, but the NFL is such a copycat league. How has nobody been able to copy what the what, you know the Belichick way or the the the, the Brady way or the Patriots way? Um, and, and I, I do that, you know, it's hard not to admire the success. You know, of course I'm rooting for the Falcons in two weeks, but it, it is, it's hard not to, to look at what they've done. And I kind of view them the way, you know, without the success, but the way, you know, I think Red Sox fans viewed a lot of those Yankee teams, the, uh, with the, the Jeter, Posada, Pettit, uh, Bernie Williams, Yankee teams, which you hate them, but you know, at the end of the day, you tip your cap because they're, they are just kind of that good. Um, but in terms of Griffin's uh, question or topic, I think that, well, I think the Patriots are going to win. I think the Falcons are sneaky good. Um, but I think I, 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 you know, if I'm a betting man, I do pick the Patriots to win. And I do think that that moment when Goodell has to handcraft Belichick and or Brady the trophy is going to be. Actually, I think it's going to end up being anticlimactic because it's going to be built up so much over the next two weeks that it's just going to be like weirdly awkward. And at the end of the day, what do you think? I have a sneaking suspicion that the Falcons are going to win this Super Bowl. I don't know why. Okay. Uh, you know, and it's funny. It's, it, it wouldn't be a surprise. I mean, the way the Falcons have been playing, it's like they've gone from sneaky good to really good in like a week and a half. Yeah, I mean, the the, the big Achilles heel for this Patriots team is their defense. And this is the wrong team to have that issue against. Um, right. Now – the thing about the Patriots that I think is fascinating is that you and I grew up in an era where your Super Bowl champions were, were pretty fucking dominant. Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, the 49ers with with really, you know, the you know, I mean, you look at the the, the, the Super Bowls against the Bengals were, were pretty close. Yes. Right. But the other Super Bowls were not. Right. Um, you know what the, they what, what they did to the Broncos that one year is a felony in three states. It, it is. I mean, Jeez. yeah, that uh, that franchise still sees a therapist about that. <laughs> I mean, you know, they've won two Super Bowls since then. Um, you know, the the Redskins. You know, uh, sorry, but when they won Super Bowls, they were really dominant. Um, right. You know, the Giants. Um, you know, they weren't as dominant, but but they were. You know, th- these you still got the sense. Um, in most of the games, there were very few Super Bowls where it was a close game. You had a couple right. at, the, at the end of the 80s, but that was about it. Um, the Patriots have, have had all basically close Super Bowls. I mean, the Eagles one wasn't as close as the score seemed to indicate. But, man, the other ones, whether it was the Rams Super Bowl or the, the Super Bowl versus the Panthers or the Super Bowl versus the Seahawks, 
um, you know, and, and certainly the two giant Super Bowls. I mean, they were all really close games. And mm-hmm. um, the I just I look at this I look at the Patriots and I say to myself I don't I mean I I don't know if they can win in a shootout. I real I really just don't know. Um, it's it's a Falcons team that maybe almost it's it's too young to realize that they shouldn't be this good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if the the big Achilles heel for the Falcons is necessarily going to hold them back in a game where the other team can't really stop them either. Uh, now I say that, and Pittsburgh had a pretty good offense, and the Patriots did a good job of stymieing them. It's right. it's hard to say. I just there's there's something about the Patriots right now that I feel like it is it it's just it just doesn't feel automatic enough. The fact that they only came out as a three point favorite, right, in the early betting is is an indicator to me that Vegas might be thinking the same way. Like you're gonna obviously the public money is gonna go on the Patriots, but I think football people are looking at this and saying eh, this is this is something that the Falcons could win. Um, yeah, it's but 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 to get to Griffin's question. You know the the theater of Goodell having to hand the trophy over. I mean, it's probably. I, I would like to think it would be incredible theater. The only thing that makes me think it wouldn't be is we had a situation that was not quite like this, but somewhat similar to this in the NBA, um, when when David Stern had to hand the trophy over to Mark Cuban. Right. You know, and and I think people were expecting that to be a more. Um, like memorable moment than it was and it really wasn't right but this is i mean i mean you have that but this is also you know it was a two-year court fight and it was you know goodell versus brady and you know it's built up i just feel like that's gonna be one of those things that's super super built up and we're talking about it for for two weeks and then it's just kind of weird or you know it's not going to be embarrassing for anybody because you know the nfl is enough of a of a machine PR machine in these cases, like in kind of the staging of events that, and, and Brady and Belichick, especially Brady, as much as they might be fueled by it and upset by it, he, they don't strike me as kind of F you guys in the moment, in, in the public moment. Like there, there, there's a very, there's a diplomat, there's a diplomacy, I think about Brady that, um, He'll he'll like smile and nod and shake his hand and you know there'll be awkward gifts about it but I don't know I don't think it's I I I, I, I think it's gonna be weirdly awkward more than anything else yeah um I, but and I guess that's my point is I just don't see it being um it's not gonna get dwelled upon because right. you know first of all Fox is not going to have a situation where the commissioner of the NFL gets made to look like a fool. Right. Um, and, and second of all, there's not I mean, there's just not much time like, you know, generally speaking in those sorts of, you know, in the postgame thing, it, it wouldn't be it, it would be Goodell handling the trophy to Robert Kraft. Right. Not 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 to Brady or to Belichick. Now, that is its own sort of awkward since, you know, Kraft basically came out and said that the commissioner lied to him and that he felt like he'd been. Um, you know, double-crossed basically by Goodell, but but to be, I mean to be honest, no one cares that much about uh, the conflict between Goodell and Kraft. So right. I just you know, as much as I like the mental image of you know of of that process happening, I'm just I'm not seeing it. I'm not I just I, I just don't see it being something that's that memorable. 
Yeah, I don't I, I don't either. Or if it's memorable, it's only memorable in the like everyone's talking about it and making something memorable out of it when there's not really anything there. But um so moving from sports, we can move into let's do uh we have two questions from Facebook from Jason Kennedy and uh let's take the music question first. Okay. Um best Pink Floyd album. Uh, <laughs> this is this I'm, is giving gonna, me this is giving me some angst since I saw this pop up. So I I am I am a Pink Floyd I'll go first. I'm a Pink Floyd agnostic. Um I don't have str- I don't have strong feelings on them one way or the other. Um I don't I don't dislike them, but they're not a band that I've listened to a ton beyond kind of like the the top of mind songs that uh that um that that everyone knows with Pink Floyd. Um so I'm going to go with Dark Side of the Moon because I'm going with Dark Side of the Moon because because if because I don't know this if you know this it's a little known fact but if you sync it up with the Wizard of Oz <laughs> now wait have you actually done that I think I I was trying to think back I think I we may have tried to do that in college once but results being inconclusive or we were just we had had too much um, of Darren Ravel's uh, products to uh, to really figure out what was happening. Did, did you ever try that? Yeah, we did. Does and it, how we, does it work? We got I don't, it. To, I, I got it to work. I got it to work. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of silly, but but uh, we did get it to work, and it's somewhat interesting. Um, all right. But so, it's also just completely random too. I mean, it's. Uh, sure. I, I don't think there's anything actually to it. Sure. Sure. So all right. So are you a Pink Floyd guy? I enjoy Pink Floyd very much. Yes. All right. So uh, so I need a little education here all on right. Pink Floyd. So. The the best way I can describe if you, if you if you were to dive into the Pink Floyd discography, there's basically there's basically what I would say or th- there's like two huge dividing lines that you have to keep in mind. Okay, um, the first dividing line occurs um, at like in the middle of their second album, because okay. the original Pink Floyd was actually um, it was a psychedelic rock band. That was really out there. Like if you if you haven't listened to their first album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, you really have to because it um, it's a completely different take on 1967. Like if huh. if your primary exposure to 1967 is Sgt. Pepper's, um, right? This you have to listen to this because it's um, it's just it's totally different. It's like if a if a a, a, a guy with a really strong British accent. Um, was singing like fairy tales, but had taken a whole lot of LSD beforehand. Huh. Uh, it's really fascinating. It's a fascinating right. album. It's one of it's one of the the more underrated albums uh, in the mainstream. The problem is that guy literally went crazy. Uh, was that Sid Barrett? His Sid Barrett, yes. Yeah. Uh, and so, middle basically halfway through the second album, he was replaced by a guy named David Gilmore. And right. so that group, David Gilmore. Roger Waters, um, Nick Wright, and uh, and uh, Mason. I can't remember the guy's last name. That's that's a strange Anthony. Name. Not Anthony Mason, <laughs> you dork. Um, Nick Mason. Nick Mason, Richard Wright, Roger Waters, David Gilmore. That was the primary group. Um, and from basically from Moore uh, all the way through to the wall at the end of the 70s, they made some incredible music. And then Roger Waters kind of drifted away. 
and it was a David Gilmore-led uh, thing from that point forward, and it was not nearly as good, but it was also the 80s. Nothing really was as good in the 80s that came out of the 70s. So, True. anyway, um, so if you if you kind of, the like the classic, like Heart of Pink Floyd occupies that stretch of time from 1969 to 1979. Um, okay. Now, you say Dark Side of the Moon, that that's probably one of the... Con- the the two conventional choices that people would normally um, put up there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other conventional choice would be the wall. Sure. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of the wall. Um, it's a different era for the band. It's a much darker era for the band. I, um, I think, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with Jason Kennedy because I saw what his pick was on the other one. I think wish you were here is probably their best album. Huh, okay. It's the album that came out after Dark Side of the Moon. Right. Um, it has one of those songs that you, you know, that you, the, the title track, which you are probably very familiar with because you've sure. heard it before. Um, I think Dark Side of the Moon is probably a very, very close second. Um, you know, and I and I really love Dark Side of the Moon. Like, it's one of those albums that I've got memorized in my brain. I can, I can, I don't need to listen to the CD to listen to it because it's all in my head. Um, but it's almost, it almost suffers from that a little bit. Okay. Like it's almost, it's almost, um, it's almost overexposed and it, it, there's, it's hard to describe what, it, it's weird how this works. It's like, this happens with, with, with some really popular, um, albums. It's like hard to really evaluate them appropriately, but I feel like, um, Dark Side of the Moon has some moments that almost feel overproduced maybe for the for lack of a better term okay and wish you were here like has a little bit of a raw edge from an emotional perspective like dark side of the moon there there are some devastating parts to it but like all of wish you of wish you were here really feels like psychologically devastated and i really i'm drawn more to those sorts of albums okay um so I would recommend both of them. I think they're both excellent albums. And I would also, I would frankly, like that whole run from Metal, Metal, Obscured by Clouds, Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and Animals, um, that that five-album run from 71 to 77, I would put up there with any five-album run from any rock band in history. That's a that's a great topic for another another maybe next week we can do best runs or streaks of albums of songs within albums because um, I just love that yeah. thinking that through or movies and stuff what what album is time off of time is off of Dark Side of the Moon Dark Side of the Moon okay because I my, of course there's an Ava Brothers link here but they covered that at midnight on their New Year's Eve show this year of course um and well, and. and so that's the closest I've had to Pink Floyd in my life lately. So. I mean, you know, pretty much every like there's ten songs on Dark Side of the Moon, and I would say nine of them are in regular rotation on on classic rock. Like the like sure. the, the Great Gig in the Sky is not, I would say, and that's probably the only one. Uh, but you know, Speak to Me and Breathe, uh, On the Run, Time, Money, uh, Us and Them. I mean, those are all you hear them all the time on classic rock, and you know, but 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 on Wish You Were Here. I mean, Wish You Were Here is in is in constant rotation. Have a cigar is in pretty constant rotation. You would right. recognize it if you heard it. Um, you know, but the Shine On You Crazy Diamond Suites are really fascinating. And I mentioned Sid Barrett earlier um, when they were recording Wish You Were Here. 
um, Sid Barrett had been gone, like out of the picture. Like, hadn't he? I don't think anybody in the band had seen him for like four years, five years by that point. And they're in the middle of recording this song, which they had written about Sid Barrett. Okay. And Sid Barrett just wanders into the studio. No way. But he's but he's shaved all of the hair off of his head. Okay. And it's just like it's a very strange sort of like reunion that just kind of comes out of the blue. And, huh. Interesting. Uh, like it's yeah, it's kind of this weird kind of like so it, it there's a sort of thing that kind of there's this kind of you know it Pink Floyd Matt Zimmerman often you know like references them as like the great complainers of classic rock. Um, and they okay. are like they they basically <laughs> like just start complaining from that point forward about you know fame and stardom and all that. The Wall is basically a double album full of like the complaints of of being too popular and not having a connection with your audience or something like that. Um, right. But, um, you know, it was like they were, they, they hadn't quite gotten to the point where that was the, the status quo for them on that album. So I look, I, you should sit down with Spotify sometime and just like, listen to all five of those albums and see what you think. It, it, it's, I, it's rewarding stuff. It, you just, it takes a little bit to get into. It's a different type of music than most of us are used to, but I think you would enjoy it. Right. And that's I will do that. And that's one of I mean, that's the great joy of something like Spotify is being able to go back into a classic rock era band and Actually, like, they're, go not, deep. they're not on Spotify now that I'm awesome. <laughs> awesome. But I, but I believe their stuff's on YouTube. All right. All right. I believe I, it's on YouTube. I, I mean, I guess I theoretically could pay for an album, but right. Who does that? Um <laughs> All right, we have one more from Jason, um, and this one we could have some fun with. How to better use hashtag alternative facts in daily life? So here's the question I have for you based off of this. Uh, you teach, I teach. Um, did, have you made an alternative facts joke in your class yet? Not only have I not, but uh, when I was watching the title games yesterday, uh, obviously the, the Kellyanne Conway alternative facts meme uh, started yesterday morning. Yeah. On Meet the Press. And immediately the the meme took on a life of its own. You had, you know, a lot of media members, a lot of sports fans um, making what they thought were funny jokes about alternative facts involving the football games. And the problem was, God, most of them were terrible. They were awful. Most of them were right. just they weren't. It wasn't even that they weren't funny. It was that I don't know how anybody could have thought that they were funny. It was almost insulting that someone at some point processed in their brain, this is comedy, because it wasn't. Um, So I have actually been gun shy to make an alternative facts uh, joke because I am concerned that I would be um, as bad as as those people that I saw on Twitter yesterday. Right, like people saying Green Bay scored alternative facts or something like that well, yeah, after the Falcons Green, went Green up Bay, to nothing. Or Green Bay just qual- just you know is, is going to the Super Bowl. You know, hashtag right. alternative facts. No, that's that's lame. Right, right. Although Steve Kerr's little bit about uh, uh was pretty good. He uh, I guess he was asked about his Orlando Magic career in Orlando, like in a pregame scrum, yes. and he laughed and he said something like Sean Spicer is talking about my ten thousand point career in Orlando, something like that, which yeah. is a pretty good line. Um, I did make the the joke really quick. Today was our first day back of classes, and in one of my writing classes, I have the little bit on the syllabus about the importance of accuracy and the and you know how mistakes are not tolerated. And I do and I did something said something like. Alternative facts will not be allowed. Be. <laughs> okay, I made that joke. Check it off. Now we can go on with our lives. You know, right. kind of acknowledge that you kind of have to make it. So to to better use it in daily life. I mean, if we're using it if we're using it in the joke 
in the joke move, I mean, I think now if you're using it in comedy, you got to let it sit for a day or two and then you come back like midweek because right now it's overplayed. But if you come back with like on a on Thursday and drop an alternative facts, then it's a li- then then you kind of get get that power of the joke back a little bit. I think it, if we're talking on a, on a pure using it for comedy move, I think that that would be the move. You kind of let it sit for a day or two and then you come back with it and it's almost like a throwback Thursday four days later. Um, I, I agree. I think I, I think it's being used wrong. I mean, what made what made it so stupefying when it happened wasn't that um, she said something and then someone attributed that to a tri- uh, to alternative facts. It was that she specifically said that Sean Spicer used alternative facts. Right. And so you almost have to approach it like that. So I think the way that you use it in real life is when a friend of yours or a business associate does something completely wrong, and mm-hmm. your response is, well, they used alternative facts. Right. You have to use it in reference to some what somebody else is saying. Right. You can't, so, yeah. You, yeah, you can't come out and say something and then hashtag alternative facts. It's one of those things where Twitter, which makes everything worse, actually right. makes this worse. It, yeah, Twitter is it, it is ruining everything, um, and including including this. Although the best burn I thought, and my wife pointed this out, she had this on her Facebook, was that Miriam Webster tweeted out something with like basically saying that by definition facts are true, like alternative facts don't exist. A fact is a statement that is given to be truth. And as my wife points out, when you are getting trolled by the dictionary, you've clearly uh, you're, you're clearly through through some sort of looking glass here. Um, but I mean, so, I mean, you mentioned this in your, in your notes, do you want to get into a little bit of this all, like handling it from a journalism perspective? And first off, I want to say this, I think that, and I've felt this way about a lot of things and you and I have kind of toyed around with this stuff and we've talked about it directly on a couple of the previous podcasts. I, I, you know, everybody has laughed or at least a lot of the journalists that I've seen have laughed and made fun of Kellyanne Conway or Sean Spicer, and certainly what they are doing on on in one sense deserves ridicule and scorn. But on the other hand, what have we done? What have we been doing for the last thirty some hours now? Yeah, we've been focusing on this alternative facts statement, right? Is, and and this has become like a constant. It's like. It's like what, like the thing that the alternative facts statement was was indicating, which was the the statement that Spicer made on Friday, that the Trump inauguration was the most attended inauguration in history. Period. Right. And you know, to me, this has created a paradox that I don't know. Frankly, and this sounds bad, and I and and I hope that people take this in the spirit that it's intended. This is creating a paradox that, from what I've seen so far, demonstrated by political journalism, I don't know if political journalism is smart enough to break out of this paradox. Okay, what, and what is the paradox? The paradox is this. The people covering politics in the White House and political figures are trained to point out bullshit and, and magnify it and expose it. Mm-hmm. Like that's their stock in trade. Right. And... So that's what they've tried to do. So they've done it with Trump. They they did it with Spicer. They did it with Kellyanne Conway. But the problem is that when 
when they've done this in the past, they've they've grabbed onto the small morsels of available information that are out there and tried to blow them up so that people understand, hey, there's bad things going on here. Like, you know, whether it was what was going on with like the Valerie Plain thing or whether whether it was what was going on with FEMA or whether, you know, like some stupid stuff that Bush would say or stupid stuff that uh, that people you know, that Tom DeLay would say, like they're, they're they're generally when this stuff has occurred, it's been gaffes or it's been like accidental right. slips of the tongue that the that you know it's like an aha moment, like journalism comes in and says, "Gotcha, we got you now," and then they they demonstrate that and that ends up being a problem. It's a very different thing when you're covering people who are purposefully doing it in order to get you to focus your attention on it, which I think is what's going on here. Um, like it's easy for for people to look at Kellyanne Conway and say, "Wow, this this person is stupid," because don't they understand that alternative facts aren't facts? And oh, look, she's being trolled by the dictionary. I think she knows that. Mm-hmm. I think Sean Spicer knows that when he goes up and he says, you know, that this was the most attended inauguration in history, that he's lying. I think he knows that. I don't of think. Of course he does. I, well, you say that, but the way that it's covered seems to be a bunch of people saying, you know, one of two things. Either don't these people realize that they're lying through their teeth to the American people or um, how how brazen and how dare they without looking at the next level, which is you're they now have you as the media member and as the as the press corps spending a large portion of your time and resources focusing on the fact that they are misstating things or using these, you know, like these wrong phrases, while you're not covering these other things that they're also doing, or that they're that they are basically obfuscating uh, with these sorts of statements. It's it's like we talked about last week with the Jeff Schaefer move. Like when when one of the Trump tweet moves is, what's he trying to distract you from, or what's he trying to not get you talk about? And let's not pretend that all this talk about inauguration crowds that it happened to happen on the day of the march of the women's marches across the world let's not pretend that that was just a coincidence or right. that they didn't they, they knew exactly what they were doing with that and, and one of the things and and i felt this way the whole throughout trump's campaign from the minute he announced and, and started with the wall back in 2015 up until what's happening literally today is that the, uh, so much of what of how political journalism has worked is been looking for that gotcha moment, like you said, the aha moment. Like, how many times have we said that you know Trump said the thing and that's gonna do him in? Like the Mex- right. like, or you know the first going back to the John McCain thing when we when everyone and probably me included thought, well, this is gonna do him in. Like this is it. You just insulted beloved John McCain. No way. Like he's done. And and so many of his supporters don't care. Um, or and and it, and it just keeps and it just keeps going, and and I really do think I mean it's an interesting such an interesting time for political journalism, um, and, and one thing I, I, that I will say that I like that I'm seeing more of is there a, a lot of the uh, kind of elite outlets are being very open and calling out these statements as lies as lies as mistruths there's a story breaking around tonight i think the washington post had it first that trump told congressional leaders that he lost the electoral the the popular vote because three to five million people voted illegally and all of the story and the stories are and the headlines are even openly saying you know despite you know 
Oh, despite no evidence to this, despite right. continued lack of evidence to it, even calling. I, I don't know if they call the, the the trouble with the statement of lies is, of course, you're always when you say lie, you're indicating a level of of what motive of I know this is wrong and I'm trying to deceive you. And I can understand to an extent the the hesitation to outright accuse someone of lying, because then you're you're reading their mind in a, in a sense. You're saying, I know you know this is a lie and you're saying it. And that can be a dangerous thing to assert. But, you know, it is it is such a, fa- a fascinating time to watch political journalism. And um, there have been some great ideas about it. Like Jack Schaefer had a piece today that I tweeted out. Um, it was like time to put on your big boy pants, which gender normative aside kind of reiterated some of the things we talked about last week, like that this is an opportunity. You know, these if the press press briefings are going to be lame, well, don't worry about them. Jay Rosen from NYU has a great idea, had, had a fascinating piece where uh, he he thinks news. His, the headline was send the interns. And basically, instead of having your top White House correspondents and top political journalists in the briefing room, have your lowest people there. Like, still cover it, still report what's said, still treat it seriously, still treat it as news, but treat it as, you know, like like sports agate. You know, have your low person on there and have the star and have your best reporters out of the building and doing and doing journalism and reporting that way. I don't know if that's going to happen. That's such a uh, a, a shift in the norms and routine practices of political journalism. Um, but I, 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 I'm oddly s- somewhat encouraged by some of what I've seen now, how last through four years, I don't know. Um, but I got to tell you, one of the things I've, I always find interesting in thinking about this is, you know, there's a constant idea. I see this on Twitter a lot is, you know, it doesn't matter what the media report. His base doesn't care. Trump's fans, Trump supporters don't care about this. And, you know, sure, I think there's that the percentage, you know, I'll call them the Breitbart audience just for shorthand. There's a percentage that doesn't care, that is very much on his side no matter what, believe, will repeat what he says, will repeat the, the falsehoods. But I, I, I think that where Trump could run into trouble is when all of a sudden it becomes a real liability and the the general Republicans who really came back to him at the end of the campaign because of the Comey letter or because of emails or because of Hillary or whatever started coming back to him and like the people like you know the paul ryan's of the world and the mitch mcconnell's the second trump starts to be a media a a real lot a true liability like in terms of passing policy he's gone i mean they're they're not gonna i I don't they 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 stuck with him so they could get the president in power but i don't think there's any real loyalty to him um okay there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. So first yes. of all, let me jump back to something you said before. I, I am a firm believer in the idea that you do not need to have your people in the press room in order to report on politics. In fact, I think to some degree it's it's almost unnecessary at this stage. Like mm-hmm. what you know, what you're gonna get out of a White House press briefing is is not going to be informative. I mean, the idea that you you know, if the president says it or if the president's representative says it, that it's automatically news and you automatically have to print that, I don't I, I think that's exactly the wrong way to approach this particular presidency. And it's it's very contextually dependent. I mean, personally I think that it's the same with most presidencies, like the you weren't getting significantly more out of the Obama presidency in terms no. of actual news, but the difference was that, frankly, 
Obama's presidency was a lot more politically acceptable to the people covering right. uh, the Obama presidency, and so that made it a lot more palatable. Uh, and that's a whole other discussion that we could get into, but that's 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 neither here nor there for this one. Um, right. But but this idea that we need people in the room, our best people in the room, you're you're wasting your resources there. And I agree. You, I can agree with that. Yeah. And 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 furthermore. You know, CNN gets a lot of shit, and rightfully so. But CNN did something that was that I take my hat off to. They, you know, they uh, made an announcement about the Spicer briefing that basically said, you know, we uh, we chose not to air this live. Yes. We chose instead to monitor it and then report afterwards because of basically because we didn't we didn't think that it would be uh, journalistically responsible to just report it unedited. And mm-hmm. and that's that's the mentality you have to have. Like the the whole conceptualization of the Trump political movement, and I think that that's overstating this. I think that this this is getting blown way out of proportion. Um, this is this is a small group of people who have who did a great job of studying media in the 21st century and figuring out how to manipulate it. That's really all this is. This is not, right. This is, this is not, you know, a, a repeat of, of, you know, of political takeovers past, in my opinion. Um, what you get with this is this, the, the Trump thing is that it's most effective when they can mainline what they want to say directly into the distribution channels and mm-hmm. you know twitter gets talked about a lot as oh tr- you know trump can communicate directly to the people and i you know what i say to that brian we've been over this a lot yeah i say bullshit to that because what he right. does is he communicates directly to journalists and then journalists take that message and parrot it to a larger audience because that's that's how Twitter works. It's not that the people read it; it's that the journalists read it, and then they put it on news because, oh, the president said it; it must be news. So right. it's the same thing with press briefings. And um, for a for a person like Donald Trump, and for a a um, an administration that is so dependent on the oxygen of publicity, the best thing to do is make sure that the airlock is tightly sealed. That's a, it's not a bad idea. Now I do I, I, I do want to I do feel compelled to say in a little bit that I know that having White House correspondents, White House reporters at the White House, it's not just about being in the briefing room. It's working a beat. It's getting to know and, and developing sources in the administration and, and 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 you know, not just the president and vice president, but staffers, junior staffers and working a beat. And and, and I do get that, but I do love the notion that you know, but they're about to move those people out of the White House, right? And and I and I and I just, and I, I mean, do they're, they're going to move them into an alt auxiliary building across the street, right? Um, are they still going to do that? Or are they just blabbering about? Is that definitely going to happen? Do you know? Look, if you find, and, and this goes this goes to my point, the I, I think you know the uh, everybody freaked out about oh we're not going to be in the White House uh, briefing room, and and they missed the larger point of that story, and the larger point of the story was. The Trump media people want to bring as many other alternative media sources in as they possibly can. They want to bring mm-hmm. talk radio in. They want to bring bloggers in. They want to bring you know um, podcasters in that are politically sympathetic. That, that's not accidental, um, right? You know the and so. Um, you know, the idea that you're cultivating sources, I don't know that 
in a Trump White House that you're going to cultivate in the building a lot of worthwhile sources. This is a very paranoid man. This is a man. This is a man who is primarily focused on loyalty. I mean, every if you re, did you read that Politico piece where they were like they interviewed his biographers? Yes, that was wonderful. Uh, it was a fascinating piece, but it, but it really highlights the 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 interesting thing here, which is if you're going to build sources for this sort of a presidency. It's not going to be hobnobbing around the, the small area of the White House you're allowed into before and after the briefing. It's going to be sitting on a bench, you know, uh, you know, eight blocks away from the Capitol building. Uh, it's going to be in the it's going to be in the parking garage at three in the morning. Right. And and so, you know, again, I think it's it takes a different mentality, a different press approach. Uh, one that we haven't seen in a while, but 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 one that's very different from the kind of everybody gets along and everybody's playing the same game, even though right. we might change shirt colors uh, every few years, sort of thing that we've seen dominate the political press relationship in Washington over the course of the last what three decades or so, four decades. I mean, I just. I agree with everything you're saying. I guess the one counterpoint I would say to that is that that is so counter to the routines and norms of journalism and of political journalism that I can understand why it is why the break isn't as clean. Like we can sit on the outside, we can sit on the outside and say, what the heck is wrong with you guys? But I understand that that, that, that this is such a a huge break from the way the job has traditionally been conceptualized and the way the job has conceptually been done that I can understand the, 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 the hesitation, the slowness to adapt, the kind of learning curve it's going to take. And I am like the CNN thing was great that they did the other day. A lot of what I'm seeing in the times and the post is, is great. It's, you know, journalism that's calling a spade a spade. And like, like we talked about last week, you know, this is the, you know, this is the opportunity where, you know, they don't want you in the building. Fine. We're going to find out everything that you're doing from outside the building and you're and you know and, and i i often just i just often think that journalists you know maybe this is a social media thing or what but they they we we tend to worry too much about being liked um whether by sources or by audiences and like look there's always going to be a group of people especially with this administration and this kind of political environment Who's not going to trust you? Who's going to think that you're, you know, that you're fake news? Um, but you know what you do. But that that I don't understand why that should stop us from doing the job that we're supposed to do. You know what I'm saying? I, I yeah. I mean, look, my my response always when when this sort of thing comes up is, you know, if I was if I was British, I would hate the British press. Mm-hmm. Or at least some aspect of the British press. Those people, and I have, we actually have a, one, a, a former, I think, BBC reporter who works in our building, and she's great, and I love her. But, man, some of those English reporters, or, or British reporters, she's Scottish, actually, but some of those British okay. reporters are just absolute assholes about the questions that they ask, about the things that they write, about the things that they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's they should be. Um, and it doesn't hurt their um, it doesn't hurt their journalistic ability. In fact, I think it helps it. It doesn't. Uh, yeah. Are they disliked by certain groups of people? Yes. But then I think they're also liked by certain groups of people who share the uh, the political perspective that their um, reporting happens to support. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I often question, you know, whether it's 
oh, we, we're too worried about being liked versus, oh, well, our editors or our publishers are too worried about us being liked. And, True. And, and yeah. I really think that that's what it ends up coming down to. And, and this is a common theme with a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast is, you know, I, I think that the biggest obstacle to really effective, hard-hitting journalism uh, in the United States on the political side is the people that run the institutions that provide the journalism mm-hmm. as opposed to the people that are providing the journalism. Right. I can, I can absolutely. No um, question about but, that. But, you know, to what you said, I understand. Look, this is this is a radical change. Um, and it's not – look, there's, there's two forces at play here. It's not just the very radical alteration of the political journalism landscape as – uh, promulgated by the very radical change to the political landscape that Trump's ascension to the presidency has provided. But it's also the ever-changing uh, digital media landscape that has you know, created this huge wash of available content. It's created um, you know, a, a very uneven playing field for a lot of the traditional outlets for journalism, and it's created the ability for people to um, promote, uh, you know, avenues of, of messages and, and and media that are, you know, mm-hmm. rapidly becoming um, stable and relied upon sources of information for people who would have normally had to have turned to more traditional, more centrist sorts of, of sources. Right. So there's a lot there's a lot going on, and I'm not. I mean, I can be critical in the macro, and, and maybe I'm overly critical, and I don't mean to be. But I, I look at it and I say, okay, if we're going to sit around and complain, which is what everybody does every day on social media about how terrible these Trump people are, then at least from a, a journalistic perspective, we need to sit down and say, okay. If you're that concerned, then quit complaining about how these people are breaking the rules and figure out how to change the rules of the game. Right. And, and that's that's where this stuff comes in. And, and you know, uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated by this process of how these changes take place and what people do to try to address the, the, the great imbalance that's starting to grow right now between what's being reported and what's actually filtering through. What'll be interesting to see, kind of to put a, a, a to wrap this part of the conversation up, I think, is in the inevitable day when Pence becomes uh, president, which um, <laughs> I don't think it's inevitable. I don't think it's I, inevitable. I I do, but um, but if and when that does happen, um, you know, Pence plays by the game. I mean, P- Pence is kind of a much more orthodox politician by method, I think, than certainly than Trump. Um, and so I do wonder, like. Is this going to create a new way of political journalism or is it going to be seen as, well, we had to do it because Trump. But once we get once Pence is in or Cory Booker's elected in 2020 or whoever it follows Trump, assuming somebody follows Trump and it's not a full time military coup, that we uh, um, will go back to the previous norms and kind of and be celebrated for that. Um, I don't know. I. Because uh, I think this is a good, this is a, I don't know, potentially good thing for journalism, but I think it's a kick in the butt to, uh, to, to show why, what, what they can do in a, in a good way. I mean, I will say this, the, it, it's amazing how, you know, in, in the, in the Bush era, people complained about the 
continued consolidation of power in the executive branch. And then all of those complaints just magically disappeared in 2009. Right. And, and yet that consolidation continued. And mm-hmm. now here we are in 2017 and suddenly everybody's like bemoaning how much power the executive branch actually has. Like all of these cabinet appointments are going to go through. Uh, mm-hmm. For 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 reasons, and it's like the, the, to me, like the, you're right. This is a kick in the butt that journalism needs. I hope, but I feel like there were elements of what occurred over the last eight years that didn't get reported on, uh, or there there wasn't a whole lot of concern about that right. have led to the political environment that we're in now, and mm-hmm. and that gets irritating because it's like and and, and there's a point that was made, and, and this got a lot of people upset yesterday. Um, because the way that the guy was saying it was, was not, it wasn't really well done. Uh, and this is a guy, I, I forget who he, who's a writer for, uh, but, um, the statement that he was making was basically that the, the, the big problem that journalism faces right now is that there is a perception, which can frankly be backed up with some pretty convincing examples that um, all of the the grievances that are being aired right now about methods of governance um, there there really haven't been any of those on the executive branch for the last eight years right and and there is a perception not just among Trump supporters or the Breitbart crowd but among the you know large sections of the the the, the moderate population of the US that um, we're seeing this explosion of, of incredibly negative press coverage of, of Trump, and and it feels like there's a tremendous amount of piling on going on. Like right. it, it feels like um, so many so many complaints, so many grievances, so many accusations are flying around that it feels like a witch hunt has developed around Trump, which is actually lessening the message. That, right. uh, of the legitimate things that need to be brought out, and that's uncomfortable for people to hear that 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 are politically opposed to Trump. I get that, but but it's true. Like that, this this what what whatever the truth happens to be, that there is a perception that Trump is now being treated unfairly by the press, right. and that is giving him uh, a, a pass among people that normally wouldn't give it because. Now the media looks like they only care about this because there's a Republican in the White House. Right, and they're and they're beating up and they're ganging up on this poor guy, and um, you know it's it, it, it's just kind of more fuel for that you liberal media, right. you know, ganging up on them, and um, yeah. So so do you want to do? So we're just we're, we're up an hour. We're, do we're, we're we're I think we're at our limit for the night here. I I think we are. So next week we can handle the uh, the ad blocking shaming, which I have a lot to say about. Um, <laughs> that's, like, that's an evergreen topic. So that yeah. really is. We also have the great privilege. Con- we have, all the topics remaining we have evergreen. We have about ad blocking privilege and why we can't have nice things on the internet. We have so, one uh, other one other thing real quick from Ben Hessler. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. About the lack of excitement around all-star games for all of the big four sports. And quick thing I'll say about that, and then I'll let you talk. Um, my perspective, I actually talked about this today because uh, my students in my intro class asked me my perspective on the, the controversy, as they put it, surrounding the snub of what Russell Westbrook uh, for the NBA all-star starters for the West. He wasn't a starter? Correct. Huh. 
Um, that would that would seem to be egregious, but okay. Um, the uh, the starters for the game. Um, it was um, for the East. Um, let's see. Let me find it here real quick. Um, where did it go? All star starters. Um, the East starters were Demar Derozan, Kyrie Irving, LeBron James, Giannis. Ante Kumpo and Jimmy Butler. Okay. The West starters were Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, Anthony Davis, and James Harden. Okay. Russell Westbrook scoring 30.6 points per game, averaging a triple-double triple for double. his first 44 games. Um, right. Yeah, normally those would be all-star worthy numbers. Right. Um, so my perspective on it, and I told them this, was, okay, you know, and then they were like, you know, well, is, this is kind of a – a, a miscarriage of justice and this is going to hurt Russell Westbrook because you know there's there's contract incentives built in to you know getting all-star starting appearances stuff like that and I said well look I think you're a fool if you let your your uh, agent negotiate an all-star clause into your contract because it's a popularity contest right you know it's like the fans have half the vote unless you're LeBron James or Steph Curry Right. That's a roll of the dice. Yeah, unless you know you're popular. Like if you're Yao Ming, yeah, absolutely. I've got you know two billion people voting for me. Right. Um. But but um. You're I think you're a fool if you rely on that uh, from an agent perspective. But more than that, I think. Look, here's the issue. What do we always hear about the All Star Game? We hear oh the All Star Game is for the fans. You know we want, we need the fans to vote because it's for the fans. The fans the fans care about who's an All Star. And mm-hmm. so I, I started. I started pointing, I like asked people, okay, are you an NBA fan? Are you an NBA fan? You know, people say yes. And I'd be like, all right, what day is the all-star game this year? <laughs> Nobody could tell me. They couldn't okay. even tell me what weekend it was in okay. February. And, and, and it made my point, which is that fans don't care about all-star games. They don't. They, they care about, you know, they'll care about whatever you put in front of them. They, mm-hmm. They'll care about, oh, hey, here's a bunch of people that we know um, playing an exhibition game. If you put that in front of them, it doesn't matter if it's at the beginning of the season, the middle of the season, or the end of the season. At the end of the day, the All-Star game is not about the fans. It's about the sponsors. That, that's and, and it's the same whether it's the, the NFL or the All-Star game. As a result, we need to dress it up so that it looks like it's about the fans. Because if we just said, hey, this is about the sponsors – well, that would be pretty nakedly ambitious. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, if you you know if you're just like, oh, this is about our business partners, then fans aren't going to pay attention, and you need the fans to pay attention because the business partners want their stuff to be paid attention to. But I just, you know, these these games used to matter because it was much harder to see players and teams right. on a nightly basis, like you know. The baseball all-star game is a great example of this. You know, in, in back in the the pre-Columbian days when there was no interest, you know, interleague play, the only time you got to see a team or a player from the other league was when you played them in the World Series. Right. And, you know, I mean, in the NBA, I mean, I remember growing up in the 80s, the NBA was never on television. Uh, you know, right. I mean, even your local team probably wasn't on television very much. So the idea that you would get a chance if you lived in Indiana, where if you did see an NBA game, it was maybe once every week or so, and it was the Pacers, whose like best player was maybe Greg Dryling. Chuck uh, Person, come or, on now. That was the late '80s. He didn't get That's drafted till '86. 
That's true. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, the, you know, but the idea that you get to see Magic Johnson and uh, you know, and 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 Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas in the same game, like that was a big deal because that just didn't happen, and we're not in that era anymore. And mm-hmm. um, ultimately. I think that that's what it comes down to. I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle. Um, right. You know, and I think, you know, the NFL was always the sport where the All-Star game or the Pro Bowl mattered the least. And the, and the reason was we always got to see all the teams. You know, right. I mean, the, the NFL is the only league with a national television contract. And as a result, you know, in the afternoons on Sunday, you'd get to watch the Giants and then you get to watch the Raiders or you get to watch the Broncos or the 49ers. Like it was like Joe Montana wasn't a mystery to people in the 80s. Joe, John Elway wasn't a mystery to people. Um, you know, the star running backs of the day, they weren't mysteries to people. And and that's, I think, to some degree why the NFL Pro Bowl never really mattered. And it's probably it, it's still the one that matters the least. I mean, I think the Pro Bowl suffers from a couple of problems. One is that, I mean, the biggest one was always for the longest time, it was the week after the Super Bowl. So you had kind of like the big climax of the Super Bowl, and it was usually a letdown. But the season ends, and then there's the All-Star game a week after. And um, so I think it always suffered from that. And, you know, there, there was always kind of a half-speed aspect to the Pro Bowl. Um, nobody really wanted to play. Nobody re- was going to blow out a knee or really try to get hurt. In that in those games, um, so I think I, I think that that hurt hurt it as well. I mean, I like your point a lot that now that we have more access to these players, it's not as big a deal to see them right now. Um, I always, I mean, for me, the highlight of All Star Weekends are always all the kind of like skills competition, right? What's the best part of the of uh, baseball all-star weekend it's usually home run derby what's the best part about basketball it's you know the dunk contest or the three-point contest or what you know the you know whatever skills competition they have in hockey too like like the game is so i don't know blatantly blatantly an exhibition and it's not special anymore uh it doesn't feel special anymore it should it, it feels that way like you're right when we were in the 80s when we were growing up again time was but it it did it felt more special like it felt like it mattered a little more to us rather than now where it's just kind of another exhibition or another time we get to see all these players together and a lot of it probably too has to deal you know money's the great bugaboo for all these arguments but look you know players have a lot more to lose in these games in terms of you know tweaking a knee or getting injured or you know whatever so they don't have the incentive or there's a disincentive to participate in the manner in which maybe they did when we were when we were younger or in or in a bygone era. But yeah, it, it's it, I would love a league to do away with the All Star game and just kind of have an All Star fan fest for a weekend. Like the NBA would just have a dunk contest, three point shooting contest, uh, you know, dribbling skills competition, you know, goofy stuff that's fun rather than kind of making it, you know. Making a quote-unquote game out of it. I don't know. It's just there, there, it's a, I, I, you know, maybe it's generational, but to me, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of blah to it. Yeah, I just I just don't see it ever coming back. I mean, the the leagues have put themselves in a position where we have to have all-star games because they're a part of the commercial enterprise. Right. But I just don't I, I just don't think they serve a purpose the way that they currently sit. Like. 
I, I admire the NHL for trying something different with like the U.S. or the North America versus the world thing. Yeah. Uh, that they did, but that went away. Um, you know, I could see the NBA trying that someday. That would be an interesting twist. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just like, I mean, you make so much money as an athlete playing regular season games. Mm -hmm. Why would you risk injury playing in a game that you don't get compensated for? Right. And I mean, that would be a Mark Cuban. It sounds like that's a very Mark Cuban argument. You know, why should I let my player do this for the good of the league when his contract is with me? Um, so, boy, we are ending on old man gripe hour, aren't we? I don't think so. I mean, do young people <laughs> even care? I, I I mean, they've been told to care, but they, I mean, I, if anything, we are the ones that care about all-star games. I don't think the young people give a crap. No, no, I don't. So it's I, actually I, I, young person griping. It, 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 it's young. Uh, so, so are we the young people in this, in this conversation? Because I like that. We are representing the young people. Yes, we we uh, we we always we serve you, young young people of our audience, yes. is what is what we're trying to say here. So, uh, so that 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 should do it for the week. Um, as always, at FlipsidePod on Twitter, hashtag FlipsidePod, or hit one of us up on Facebook if you have a topic that you would like one of us to talk about. We have some evergreen ones, but we're always looking for good stuff to talk about. So please share your ideas with us. We will spend at least one minute on any topic you give us. We enjoy it. We love it, and we think that you people are, frankly, the stars of the show. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, for Brian Moritz, I'm Galen Clyde. Thanks for listening to the flip side, folks. Um, be sure to tune in on uh, a weekly basis. We normally publish every Tuesday. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Rate us, please. We need ratings. Yes. Ratings are always positive. And contact us on social media, at Dr. GC, at BP Moritz. All right. Thanks. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you on the flip side.